Mr. Trump, Dr. Carson just referenced the single most important job of the president, the command, the control, and the care of our nuclear forces. That was talk radio host Hugh Hewitt opening up a question for then-candidate Donald Trump about the U.S. nuclear arsenal. This took place during a Republican primary debate in 2015. The president has a lot of power over the U.S. nuclear arsenal, so it's common and critical to ask presidential candidates about it. In the second part of the question, he mentioned a term you may or may not have heard, this thing called the nuclear triad. Then he mentioned the triad. The B-52s are older than I am, the missiles are old, the submarines are aging out. It's an executive order. It's a commander-in-chief decision. What's your priority among our nuclear triad? Mr. Trump's answer to the question was, shall we say, peculiar. In the early stages of his response, he started talking about the Iraq War. One of the things that I'm frankly most proud of is that in 2003, 2004, I was totally against going into Iraq because you're going to destabilize the Middle East. I called it. I called it very strongly. Now, to be clear, Mr. Trump wasn't actually against the Iraq war initially, but that's beside the point. He then transitions back into nuclear weapons. Well, sort of. But we have to be extremely vigilant and extremely careful when it comes to nuclear. Nuclear changes the whole ballgame. Frankly, I would have said, get out of Syria, get out. If we didn't have the power of weaponry today, the power is so massive that we can't just leave areas that 50 years ago or 75 years ago, we wouldn't care. It was hand-to-hand combat. Then he starts talking about climate change, pivoting back to his safe space attacking President Obama. The biggest problem this world has today is not President Obama with global warming, which is inconceivable. This is what he's saying. The biggest problem we have today is nuclear, nuclear proliferation, and having some maniac, having some madman go out and get a nuclear weapon. Clearly, this answer was going off the rails. So Hugh Hewitt tried to bring him back to the question about the nuclear triad. Three legs of the triad, though. Do you have a priority? Because I want to go to Senator Rubio well, I, I after think, that. And I ask think him. to me, Luke, nuclear is just the, the power, the devastation is very important to me. I think it's fair to say that President Trump, at least at the time, had no idea what the nuclear triad was. But to be fair, a lot of Americans have never heard of the nuclear triad, and for good reason. Like a lot of nuclear weapons policy, it's often not discussed in public. And when it is, it's usually during boring congressional hearings or events at think tanks here in Washington. So what is the nuclear triad? How did it come about? Was it a strategic decision to have a triad or an accident of history? Will we always have a nuclear triad? In just a few moments, we're answering those questions and more with Dr. Alex Wellerstein, one of the world's premier nuclear historians. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. And today, we're talking about the nuclear triad, a topic that comes up often on Capitol Hill, but not so often elsewhere. Here's Senator Fisher from Nebraska talking about it. The legs of the triad have different strengths. The bombers are visible, and therefore they have what I call signaling value. 
The submarines are highly survivable, and the ICBMs are the most responsive leg, and they can be launched at a moment's notice. And then Senator Cotton from Arkansas. I, I want to return to the nuclear triad discussion you had with Senator Fisher, in which you express your support for it. And General Hyten, the commander of U.S. Strategic Command, appearing for a congressional hearing. First priority is the triad. Inside the triad, the first priority is the submarine. A lot of time and energy goes into expressing support for and the importance of the nuclear triad. But what exactly is it? Nuclear triad is a term that the United States especially likes to use to talk about the types of systems it uses in its nuclear arsenal. And so there's three, as the term triad would suggest. Uh, one is the land-based uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. So these are missiles that can uh, uh, launch from the basically the Midwest and hit anywhere more or less in the northern hemisphere. You have submarine launch ballistic missiles, which are ballistic missiles that launch from submarines, as the name implies, uh, and they can be hidden anywhere uh, at any given time. And then you have bombers, which are, you know, airplanes that can drop weapons that fall using gravity and have, you know, various ranges of yields, uh, both high and low, and have different levels of accuracy. And so the triad idea is that having all three of those together gives you uh, certain advantages strategically that you might not have if you only had two or That's Dr. Alex Wallerstein, a historian of science, including nuclear weapons, at the Stevens Institute of Technology. The current U.S. nuclear triad is very extensive. The existing land-based intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, is called the Minuteman 3. We have about 400 of these 60-foot-high missiles in underground silos located in Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado, and Nebraska. When launched, These missiles shoot into the atmosphere, fly through space via gravity at speeds of about 15,000 miles per hour, and then land at their target across the world within about 30 minutes. The sea-based ballistic missiles are called Trident missiles, and they're aboard 14 Ohio-class submarines, which are nearly the length of two football fields, and they're based in the states of Washington and Georgia. Trident missiles are essentially similar to the land-based ICBMs, They fly through space, travel really quickly, and can reach targets very far away. The difference is they first use pressure and steam to travel through the water from the submarine. And once they reach the air, their engines ignite and blast off. Another difference, at least now, is that submarine-launched ballistic missiles hold more than one nuclear warhead on board. We call these multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles, or MIRVs, M-I-R-V. Then there is the final leg of the triad, the air leg, the bombers. Unlike the other land and sea-based missiles, the bombers are dual-capable, meaning they have conventional and nuclear missions. Today, they consist of the B-52 Stratofortress, a giant eight-engine aircraft that's been around a really long time. Today, the B-52 can carry a nuclear cruise missile. Cruise missiles don't go nearly as far or fast as ballistic missiles, but they're stealthier, can avoid radar, and use onboard computers to reach a target. And then there's the other bomber of the airleg. It's called the B-2. That flat, strange-looking aircraft, usually called the stealth bomber. The B-2 can hold a different nuclear weapon, called the B-61 gravity bomb. As the name implies, this bomb uses no engines, only gravity, 
to reach its target. The nuclear bombs used on Japan were larger, less advanced versions of these. Okay, so the idea behind all of these different nuclear weapons and delivery systems is they all serve a unique role, right? Well... The triad is a completely later justification for why they have these systems. Uh, the term, as far as I can tell, only starts to surface in the 1970s. It gets very popular in the 1980s, and then it's sort of stable for a while after that. It's a term that you use to justify not cutting land-based missiles, sub-based missiles, or bombers. It's a term that makes it sound like you need all three of those all the time. It is not the historical justification for why they developed those three. Those three systems have their own separate trajectories. They are not the only systems either then or now, uh, but especially not in the Cold War. There were way more than three types of delivery mechanisms. It's an evolution historically that then gets sort of enshrined into this term around the time in which people are talking about disarmament and reductions. The going rationale for keeping the triad essentially goes like this. The bombers are really useful because you can order them back. They're flexible. And the submarines are useful because they're stealthy and are extremely difficult to find underwater, which means if any adversary decided to use nuclear weapons against us, the submarines are always able to respond, hence deterring said adversary from attacking us in the first place. And the land-based missiles, well, the rationale for those are a bit more complicated. Since there are 400 ICBMs, Russia would have to fire at least one, if not two nuclear weapons at each one in the event of a nuclear war to ensure that they're destroyed. And that means they soak up, I put that in quotes, lots of Russian nuclear weapons that could hit other military targets or maybe even cities. Yeah, this is actually the main argument for them. The amazing thing about this is most of the folks in Montana or North Dakota, Wyoming, Colorado, and Nebraska don't realize they're quite literally seen as targets by our own deterrence planners. But here's a fact. These weren't the original rationale for these systems. If you look at the history, how this whole triad came about is a bit more improvised. The first means of getting a nuclear weapon from point A to point B uh, was the bomber, heavy bomber, uh, B-29s, World War II, Hiroshima, Nagasaki. B-29s were developed to bomb Japan remotely. Uh, when they were making the first atomic bombs, one of the requirements was that it is able to be delivered by a B-29. Uh, they still had to modify the B-29 to be able to deliver uh, atomic bombs. It could not just be, it wasn't just a regular uh, B-29. It required it was known as a silver plate B-29, which is basically a B-29 where they removed all of the armor and all of the armaments. So it's a defenseless B-29 and it's otherwise too heavy to carry these giant early generation atomic bombs. And the result of that uh, and the result of World War II is that bombers and air power in general began to be seen as this sort of way in which American security would be projected abroad, and, and, and that this was the future of war power, was air power. Uh, and you don't have that previous to World War II. Uh, at, during World War II, all air work is being done through the Army, the Army Air Forces, and that splits off in 1947 to become the Air Force. And so these, these people who are these World War II bomber engineer veterans, people like Curtis LeMay, who are well-known, uh, they end up becoming extremely influential in the new Air Force, and their sort of ethos is bombers are best, right? Uh, these uh, are people who believe in the sort of machismo of the bomber, right? They like the bomber hero. They like the idea that a human being is involved in this massive machine. They like the idea that your 
were flying your weapons to your targets. And so U.S. investments and the fact that we were the only nation that really had uh, a large heavy bomber force, the British had some heavy bombers, uh, we we heavily, heavily, heavily uh, over-invested in bombers for the first decade or so of the Cold War. The U.S. started to get interested in ICBMs in a serious way only after 1953, um, not because the technology had not existed prior to 1953. The the Americans were already well aware of the potentials of ballistic missiles, and the Germans had worked on the V-2, and we had taken those Germans and put them to work making our weapons and uh, improving on these. But it was not a serious investment prior to 1953. And part of this is because the Air Force just was not that interested. Uh, You can't fly a missile. It's, It's not really about, you know, heroic pilots. It's entirely about engineers. It's about scientists. But that meant the Navy was a bit left out. As the Air Force is gearing up, the Navy realizes that if it doesn't develop its own sort of missile-based nuclear contribution to the stockpile, then it's going to be made somewhat irrelevant in the future. And so they start pushing for submarine-based missiles. The first one is a cruise missile called a a Regulus, which is an outstandingly crude weapon. Um, Those were not very good weapons, but they sort of deployed them uh, relatively quickly. Uh, But they uh, invested heavily in the Polaris program. So this is a submarine-launched ballistic missile somewhat intermediate range in the initial versions. Uh, and they, they bit off a little bit more than they could chew. Um, we now know that the early Polaris missiles were extremely unreliable and the warheads were very unreliable and probably about three-fourths of them would not have detonated if they were launched. Uh, there was a, a design flaw that took them many years to discover. But this was the sort of Navy rushing into it very quickly, uh, uh, trying to get involved. And so this is sort of how they developed. First bombers, then ICBMs, and then a little bit submarine launch missiles. And over the course of the period, things shift around quite a bit. The bomber really declines in importance because once you have long-range missiles, you can't shoot them down uh, very easily, whereas you can try to shoot down bombers. And bombers are also somewhat more dangerous. You can have bombers can crash, especially if they're flying around with nuclear weapons loaded into them, and there were many examples of this. And so they ended up shifting more and more resources into things like ICBMs. Today, most of our, our forces are in our ICBMs or in our submarines. And the submarine becomes increasingly important, especially after you develop nuclear reactors for submarines. Now you have a weapon that can stay underwater sort of indefinitely and can strike from anywhere and can be hidden and be very silent. So as Dr. Wellerstein explains, it wasn't exactly a strategic rationale that brought about all of these nuclear weapons delivery programs. They really arose by these sort of separate forces relating to culture and funding and making sure they don't get left out and inner service rivalry and all these little other things uh, are sort of what lead to the Americans having the capabilities they have. Even landmark events of the time had a major impact on the development of certain nuclear programs. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this earth. Suddenly, it has become as much a part of 20th century life as the whir of your vacuum cleaner. It's a report from man's farthest frontier, the radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. Sputnik's really interesting. It wasn't a surprise, even though we often talk about it. Like You you could have learned that Sputnik was going to be happening by reading the New York Times. The Soviets were not coy about their intentions, and they were for years talking about how they're going to put a satellite in space, and they're going to do it fairly soon. 
The surprise is that they sort of beat the United States. And the idea that the Soviets would beat them at anything, much less putting things into space, which has lots of both military and cultural and political implications, that was surprising to people. If, if the United States had actually invested in ballistic missile technology uh, from the beginning, we would have had it years earlier. We didn't invest in it because uh, the, the people in charge of making those kind of appropriations didn't think missiles were interesting or important or even possible. They thought, oh, these are going to just be too hard, even though we had lots of reason to think that that was not the case. And the Soviets did too, which is why they invested in them. So we had a, a sort of predisposition against missiles. So in some sense, not a surprise. And people like Eisenhower just said, like, this doesn't change anything. We're already working on our own missiles. Just because you can put up a beach ball in space does not yet mean you can drop an H-bomb on New York or Washington. The military mostly not that concerned, but the, the public and Congress got very concerned. The Sputnik shock is people sort of saying, we're 10 years behind, we need to be getting it together, we need more funding. The, one of the practical effects is the Eisenhower administration had approved um, sort of six major intermediate or long-range missile programs, and the idea was that they would pick the two that were the most successful and most reliable and then cancel the rest after you had figured that out. Sputnik made that sort of politically impossible, and so they ended up having to deploy all six of them, even though they were somewhat redundant and some didn't work that well. And beyond events like Sputnik, there were some, shall we say, more ambitious ideas for nuclear weapons that some came about and others never did. The idea that people knew what the best strategies were and everybody agreed is, is totally false. I mean, every, they were thinking about every crazy idea they could think of. This was all new to them. This is all new technology. Who knows what the magic thing might be? So some of the ones that are I would file under bad ideas, one is the nuclear-powered bomber. So this is a, a long-range bomber that had a nuclear reactor in it, and the idea would be that it could fly around sort of indefinitely. The problem is, uh, A, the shielding for that is very heavy because you don't want your pilot to die, and the amount of radiation is... Uh, prohibitively extreme. Some of the tests they did on this, the near the reactor, it's like enough radiation to kill a tree, which is a lot of radiation. That's that's several orders of magnitude more than is necessary to kill a human being. So that's one bad idea. They did get pretty far in the testing, and for a while, that they treated this in Congress in particular, but the, in the military, they treated this as like the most important thing to invest in. We needed basically an infinity bomber that can never have to land or be refueled. And in retrospect, you look at that and you think that's a really bad idea because airplanes crash with a predictable rate. Some of the other ones that are famous, Davy Crockett is a favorite, of course. This is an 80-pound nuclear weapon that could be launched off of a bazooka, a very lightweight tactical weapon, which we deployed. We actually did deploy these in, in hundreds and, and, uh, of them all over. I just want to point out one of my favorite aspects of the Davy Crockett. One of the proposed mechanisms for using the Davy Crockett was on a flying Jeep. So, I mean, this, this is like you can't get much more Cold War than a flying car with tiny nuclear weapons being shot off of an atomic bazooka, right? But one of the, the really great ones is Project Pluto. This is a nuclear reactor-powered cruise missile. So it's a gigantic cruise missile. It's got a nuclear reactor in the back of it. And it is meant to go supersonic, faster than speed of sound. So it's going to jet over to the Soviet Union, and then it's going to be just sort of flying around there. And they have some wonderful diagrams of it, sort of popping little H-bombs out the top. They don't, they, they, for whatever reason, they weren't shooting them down. They were like 
uh, flipping them up and, uh, and over onto you know all their targets, and then it would move on to another target and flip an H-bomb onto it. And because it's a giant nuclear reactor, it's spewing out radiation out the back of it. So you could just fly it around and contaminate everything after you've run out of missiles and things. So they spent a lot of money on Project Pluto. This was a big endeavor. They thought this was like a really exciting way because it's really fast. It flies really low. So there's just no, you're not even going to see it coming. You're not going to be able to shoot it down. And then it's just this like doomsday weapon. We talked a lot today about the history of the Triad and what weapons we have in the Triad today, but we didn't cover what the future of the Triad is going to look like. The current plans created by the Obama administration call for a complete rebuild of the nuclear arsenal over the next few decades. That means new submarines called the Columbia class, new ICBMs called the ground-based strategic deterrent, a new stealth bomber called the B-21 Raider, a new nuclear cruise missile called the long-range standoff weapon, updated warheads, and more. Some of this rebuild makes more sense than others. For example, overhauling some of the weapons to ensure that they're safe and secure is a really good idea. So is ensuring that our command and control structure is up to date, which avoids any communications incidents that, with nuclear weapons, could be disastrous. But do we really need a new stealthy cruise missile when we're building a new stealthy bomber? Do we really need to build 12 new submarines when 8 would likely be sufficient for our deterrence needs? Do we still need land-based ICBMs, and if so, why do we need to build so many? Here's the thing. According to the Nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, or CBO, we're set to spend $1.2 trillion, with a T, over the next three decades on this rebuild. When adjusted for inflation, that's $1.7 trillion. But that's only the current plan. Based on what we're hearing from public reporting and back-channel discussions, the Trump administration is likely going to propose a larger plan that can involve building new nuclear weapons, something we haven't done since the end of the Cold War. This could lead to a lot of problems, not least of which is a sharply increased cost beyond the $1.7 trillion. There are also rumors that the Trump administration will propose an easier route to the resumption of explosive nuclear testing, something we also haven't done since the end of the Cold War because, from a technical perspective, we don't need to. The National Nuclear Security Administration, or NNSA, has an entire program, and some of the most sophisticated supercomputers on the planet dedicated to ensuring that our weapons work without having to resort to explosive testing. If the Trump administration goes down this road, the United States will join North Korea as the only countries that have explosively tested nuclear weapons in the 21st century. I don't know about you, but that's not a club I want to be in. We'll have to wait and see what the Trump administration will formally propose. We'll know more in early 2018, but right now we can definitively say this. Nuclear weapon spending shouldn't be a decision made on autopilot. We don't necessarily need a plan that replaces everything we have now simply because we have them now. Dr. Wellerstein puts it best. Never fall into the trap that believing that the way things are is the way they have to be, or that the way things are is, is done that way for a really good reason. People can come up with stories about how they made all the right choices, and that's usually what we call an official history. Thank you.
If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. As a final note, if you ever want to be horrified, or perhaps you're just feeling nihilistic, check out Dr. Wellerstein's online platform, NukeMap, which simulates a nuclear detonation at virtually any size anywhere in the world. You can place it over your house, your favorite city, anywhere, and see the death toll, what the radioactive fallout would look like, and much more. It's a sobering reminder of why nuclear weapons simply cannot be used again. Ever.